Welcome to Growing Home, the podcast that looks at the practices and products to help you take care of the place that means the most to you, your home. I'm your host, Terry Therian. Your co-host, Len Giddix, had a prior commitment today. However, he'll be joining us again on the next episode. To pick up from our last discussion, we focus on the best practices for seeding and overseeding the lawn. However, it left us with a key question. Which grass seed mixture is right for our lawn? So we reached out to the person who is not only a top expert in grass seed development, but whose last name solidifies that this is truly his life's calling, Barry Green. Barry is the president and fifth generation of Jonathan Green, a leading grass seed and lawn care products company. And for today's episode, we're actually on site at Jonathan Green headquarters in Farmingdale, New Jersey, with our special guest, Barry Green. Barry, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for coming down here, Terry. Great. Well, thank you again for having us. Uh, you mentioned, you know, it's a really busy time of the year, especially working with the side growers. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, this season for the side growers and, and what you refer to as a side rush? Well, it's been a very busy season. Um, right now, it's been raining an awful lot, and um, they get their fields prepared, and then they get you know two or three inches of rain, and it washes it out, and uh, so they're a bit stressed. But they're always stressed at this time of the year. Um, I've learned from so many years of calling on sod growers that it makes a big difference in the final stand. Um, you know, it's based on the date they plant. If they plant in the end of August or early September they are usually going to be able to harvest that grass in one year. If they wait and plant at the end of September, early October, then it's going to be go into the second year. And they're trying to turn that ground, uh, you know, on an annual basis so they get the money out of the crop. But it's um, we deal with sod growers all over the United States. Um, it's, a, it's a big part of our business, not as big as the retail, but it's, it's significant. And um, I've always loved the sod business because I, and I don't put it this way with a sod grower because you don't want them to think you're testing your product on their their ground with their business. But I think of them as giant test plots, Um, hundreds and hundreds of test plots in different areas around the United States, different regions. We'll sell sod growers as far south as Georgia, as far north as Maine, all the way to the West Coast. Um, in Colorado, so high elevation in Rhode Island, right at sea level. Um, it's, a, it's a challenge, but um, we, we are interested in the end results. We're interested in, in a pr- product that is going to perform for them and for the homeowner. Um, so we specialize in grasses that are not heavy seeders, um, that have a deep root system, um, that, um, that knit faster. Uh, these are all attributes of the grass that the homeowner will enjoy too. Um, I, I don't want to get too far afield here for your audience, but people ask me many times, well, Barry, what's the difference between black beauty grass seed and other grass seed or your blue panther bluegrasses? What's the difference? Why yours may even cost a few bucks more. Is it worth it? And um, the answer is very simple, um, but not generally understood. We breed a vegetative plant that puts its strengths into its roots, not into seed head formation. Varieties that produce a lot of seed on an acre of land are usually of European origin. We call them the heavy seeders. So they may produce uh, 2,500 to 3,000 pounds of seed per acre. When you go to contract with a farmer on the West Coast, you are going to get a lower contracted price because he's got more to sell you. Black Beauty varieties never yield more than 1,500 pounds of seed per acre. They yield, they don't, you know, they're not great yielders, but they are incredible performers. Uh, and they're, they, that's why they have the, the um, very uh, thick, brushy, beautiful look, like bluegrass. It's tall fescue, but it looks like bluegrass to most people. Um, and these varieties perform because they don't put their strength into into reproductive uh, into putting up reproductive tillers, and it's that it's that simple. We pay more for the grass, but it doesn't actually cost more at retail because we don't do two step distribution. 
we don't sell to the chains and then mark it up or allow it to be marked up to independence. We go directly, we are what they call vertically integrated. Directly, we are research people work directly with farmers. The farmers sell and sell to Cascade Seed, our West Coast research and production company. We buy, we own it, but we buy directly from Cascade Seed and it goes from us directly to the sod farm. But anyway, the, the, the same grass that is used by professional sod growers all over the United States is what is sold in our retail mixes. You know, think of this. A sod grower is the only professional customer who starts with a blank slate, a bare piece of ground, plants a lawn, and then harvests it or cuts it, lifts it off the ground and moves it. And they do it consistently in a year. So that means it's got to germinate, it's got to fill in, it's got to grow thick, it's got to grow enough root system to cut it and lift it. Now, um, homeowners, many struggle to grow a good lawn in 10 years of trying. They always have bare spots, weeds, things they can't get rid of. But these grasses perform so well that sod growers are consistently able to harvest their product on time. And that's something that I, that our grasses will do that our competitors won't. The national brand, and there's no use mentioning any names, but they don't sell any sod growers. They don't, they don't have a professional division anymore. Almost everybody else that sells at retail does not sell to sod growers because they are interested in things that are cheap to buy, so they're cheap to sell. It's, it's uh, my name on the bag. We're proud of what we do. Jonathan Green was my great-great-grandfather, so we're not going to take any shortcuts. Um, we just want to be proud of um, what, what we provide, and people, the people that really want a good loan seem very happy with the results, and they stick with us. You know, maybe for an intended pun here, you talked about strong roots. Uh, can you take us through your, you know, being the fifth generation and Jonathan Green is a family business, can you take us through the company's history and how it got started? Well, Jonathan Green, he actually ran a, what was called the Cotton Bleach and Dye Works in the north of England um, at around the time Abraham Lincoln was president. Um, he, he was a farmer. Um, what, what that was is back at the, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, cotton was grown in, in um, Georgia, Savannah. Savannah was the port. The cotton was shipped to England, which is where the mills were. This is before they were, I mean, they were here too, but that was the center of industry at that point. And um, the uh, cotton bleach and dye works would take the raw cotton and in a and make it into a textile, and then they would dye it. And Jonathan Green was in charge of one of these plants. Um, but sadly, his uh, wife passed away when he was 40 years old. And um, Jonathan Green, now, uh, you know, on his own, a widower, um, started to, he was looking for companionship, I guess, and he, we know that he started to visit the pubs. Sometimes we think maybe he was there a little too much. So <laughs> to save himself, he... Um, he got he got into the game of uh, what what the English call bowling on the green. Italians will call it bocce ball, but it's where you roll a ball on grass to knock down pins, just like bowling in this country. But we do it on a lane. It, it exists here too, but it was a big sport in England at that time. And um, Jonathan Green uh, was apparently very good at it, and he wanted to build a better bowling surface. So, um, because they were playing the game in pastures with clumpy grass, so he began to work with the grasses that we know were av available at that time, uh, which were rye grasses and fine fescues. And he did very basic breeding, but um, he was able to improve those grasses and make a better bowling surface. Um, that was really his contribution to the business. Um, he died in 1917, but his son Charles and his son Jack and my father Barry uh, and me, we've all been involved in the turf business. Um, but in the in the 20s, um, Jack came to America. And so there was a bit of a break. It's not exactly the same company. Um, the modern company, uh, the 
company that sells to retailers and so was begun in uh, November 1st, 1957. But our history in the business goes back to, we dated from 1881 in that first Bowling Green. Um, today, the, the business is run by, um, by me. I'm the president of the company. My father's still active. He's 84. He, we still call on Sod Farms together. And my brother-in-law is here. He's not in sales, but he's involved in the purchasing. Um, he's a vice president here, very important part of the organization. He's brought some uh, great ideas to the table, like our new soil foods years ago. Um, and we've that's, that's the family, but... Um, it's uh, it's been a long road. Um, it's been very challenging, um, but um, you know, here's I'll, I'll end with this. I, I brought out a family saga here to, for you to take with you. It's a it's a pamphlet or a booklet. It's about thirty pages long, actually, on our family history, with pictures that take you through the different generations. But it ends with a um, with a statement that Jonathan Green wrote. Um, my grandfather actually had some of his writings, as we know he did. It says, look to the future. As an endless dream, a family business goes on, each new generation setting out guided by the spirit of the past, dedicated through long days to the, to the success of the enterprise, finally destined to build on foundations laid generations ago. And it's signed Jonathan Green Seedsman, Duxbury Farm. So all the way back to that time he believed in family businesses and that's why we've stuck with independence we know there's no shortcut to um to real quality um, so it's it's a uh, it's been an interesting ride and luckily we're we're still here to tell the story you know they do i will end with this they do have a saying in england um i don't think they'd use it in this country but the saying is rags to riches to rags in three generations. And so I guess it, uh, you know, actually my my daughter was in the business too, um, and uh, so she would be the sixth. So we've made it twice the rags to riches to rags story. But anyway, I guess that's enough family history. So you talked about, you know, the development of seed and everything. Uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, Black Beauty and, and that you know, you mentioned as you know one of your earliest uh, developments as a company. Well, uh, we can take. I can't take complete credit for that because the the beginning of that story starts with um, a professor at Rutgers University. His name was uh, um, Doctor Reed Funk, Cyril Reed Funk. Um, he was a genius at breeding. He started as a corn breeder, and of course, corn is in the grass family, but. He arrived in, um, at Rutgers University, uh, I think it was about 1962. My father knew him quite well. Um, as a matter of fact, he moved this business from northern New Jersey to Farmingdale, New Jersey, to be near the Rutgers Research Station at Adelphia, which is just three miles down the road here. Um, we were a very small family business, still dealing with sod growers, but we didn't own our own varieties back then. And we, we, we needed to. In order to be competitive, you had to be contracting for your own grasses. If you bought grasses from others and contracted them, you didn't have the right price. So um, my father, who knew Dr. Funk, was always saying, uh, he called him Reed, but Reed, would you, would you help us? Uh, would you give us some material that we can own that we can take to farmers and get grown? And Dr. Funk told my father, well, what will you do with it? You don't have your own uh, West Coast operation. You don't have your own plant breeders. Um, you know, it's really you're, you're not going to be successful. So we made that investment. We, we opened up Cascade Seed in, um, in near Salem, Oregon, which is our research and production company. We hired plant breeders, and we went back to them again. And he, we said, we need bluegrass. Everybody was growing bluegrass. That's what we wanted. And he said, you can't afford to wait for bluegrass. It takes 10 years to develop because bluegrass is an apomictic plant, which means, it's, which means each plant is, is an identical twin of the one before it. It's not a, it's not a, a sexually pollinated variety. It crosses in, inside itself. It's, and Dr. Funk did something that had never been done before. 
he was able to breed Kentucky bluegrasses, um, which they thought was impossible. The, the uh, name of the, um, the scientific term for that breeding is interspecific hybridization. It's kind of complex for this subject, but Dr. Funk did something that they thought was impossible. So we wanted our own version of, of Dr. Funk's work. And he said, it took me 10 years to create Adelphi. It will take at least seven or eight years to do this again. I don't think your program can wait that long, and I think it's the wrong direction anyway. And um, my father said, well, what can we do? We, we, you know, we, we can't wait that long. He said, well, I want you to look at Festuca rundinacea, which is tall fescue. And we said, well, tall fescue is kind of a weed. Nobody wants that in their lawn. And he said, I want you to come to my, um, to my greenhouse. I want to show you something. Now, Dr. Funk was already known as an authority worldwide. And by the way, this is in the late 80s this happened, uh, about 86. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. It was about, 80, about 83 because 86 we officially opened Cascade. Um, he, um, he brought us into the greenhouse, and on, a, on two sawhorses and some wooden planks, there was... Um, there were uh, 46 plants in clay pots, and they were the ugliest-looking plants you can imagine. And I was a young guy then, and maybe young and stupid, and I said to um, uh, Dr. Funk, Dr. Funk, those plants are, um, these are ugly. Nobody would want these in their lawn. And he looked at me, and right away I knew I'd said too much. He said, Barry, um, you're asking Dr. Funk the wrong question. You should ask Dr. Funk why is he interested, and where do these plants come from? So I was smart enough to know to shut up and ask those questions. And my father was there, you know, and he was kind of staring me down at this point. Um, he, he, instead of answering, he took a leaf, and he ripped the leaf off, and back then we were dealing with the microscopes, and he, he put the leaf on a glass slide, put it under a microscope, and then he said, take a look at this leaf under magnification. So we started to look. And he said, what do you see? And I, my father, who looked first, said, I don't see anything. I see some lines. He doesn't have great vision to take his glasses off. And he says, Dr. Funk says, well, Barry, do the lines form a pattern? He, and eventually my father said, yes, it, it looks like a box. He, Reed said, you're not looking close enough. And then my father said, yes, it's, it's a hexagon. It's six-sided. And he said, exactly. What does that remind you of? And my father, you know, was sort of grasping his straws for a minute, and then he came to him. He said, Dr. Funk, it looks like a honeycomb. He said, exactly. That's what it is. He says, you were looking at a grass that developed an adaptive trait to survive extremes, extreme heat in this case. Now ask me where it came from. And so we did. He said, this was sent to me from an oasis on the edge of the Sahara Desert in the border country between Morocco and Algeria. He said, a place where tall fescue should not be able to live. And I, I said, well, what would it be doing in the desert? He said, remember, Festuca rundinacea is native to the Mediterranean basin. He said it was probably an animal feed carried in a camel caravan, you know, hundreds of years ago across North Africa. And you know, somehow established itself. But because it's deeply rooted, because tall fescue will put down at least a four-foot root system, and because of this waxy cuticle coating that lowers evapotranspiration, so the, the plant acts like a camel, preserves moisture, um, you've, got, you know, you've got a breakthrough here. That nature has given you this opportunity. Now, so then he said, you said they were ugly. That's not what breeders do. Breeders take that trait and try to breed it into something that looks better. And that was the, what we call the Black Beauty Breakthrough. Now, we, he gave us those plants exclusively for um, about uh, five years we were allowed to have them. Then they would have to be go to other people. But we, in that time frame, there was another discovery made. It was made in a park in Marquette, Michigan, so if you know anything about Michigan, uh, that's at the top of the peninsula. It is very, very cold in Marquette, Michigan. It's actually north of Wisconsin. Yes, it is. It is very high up. And in the, there was another Festuca arundinacea discovered. It was very dark green in color, but it turns out it had the waxy cuticle coating. We didn't realize there would be anything in North America like this, but we found it. 
are the plant breeders assisted by Dr. Funk initially, but the final work was done by our people. Um, they cross these two lines. So the Black Beauty that w- was released, and it was released in 1993, it was called EA, Early Arundinacea, meaning it, it emerged faster from the, it produced its seed faster. It was planted as an experiment by a sod grower named Fred Patillo in um, in uh, North Carolina, um, right on the on, actually on the grounds of the uh, Biltmore Estate, and we probably would have never realized what we had, but just by chance, because frankly I gave it to Fred and I said, Fred, please don't mix this with anything. They tell me it's special, you know. <laughs> Make sure it gets planted. So, um, but I kind of forgot about it because you know you're busy in your business. I was there a year later, and I was about to leave. I was about to go back to the airport, and just then a young man named David Bradley, who was um, Fred Patilla's son-in-law, comes rushing into the room. Did you show Barry the picture? And Fred said, oh, I forgot, but Barry's late for his plane. No, 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 I set up the projector in the other room. You've got to look at this. So we went, trooped into the other room. He turns on the projector, and here I'm looking at a field from what looks like thousands of feet up, that has a light green bullseye in the middle of it with dark green grass around it. it and I thought, they're going to ask me to identify a disease with an aerial shot. I have no clue what I'm looking at, you know. <laughs> I thought I was going to be embarrassed. And before I had to speak, David said, Barry, that's that grass you gave us. I said, well, why is it light green in the middle? He said, well, I ran out of seed, and I went and got the Montauk Dolphesk and finished the field off. And that explained the light green color. I said, well, how did you get an aerial shot? And then Fred explained that his sister, who worked for National Geographic, who just returned from a trip to Africa, was hired by the Biltmore Estate to take these full foliage pictures, was flying over the estate and saw this field, thought it was unusual, and snapped four shots from the seat of the plane. And that's how we knew we had something like nobody, that nobody else had. And that was the beginning. Then I got, and then we hadn't actually gone to the field. I went to the field, and I thought, wow, this is different. So um, that was the beginning of Black Beauty. That, that was six generations ago. There have been six you know, distinct generations since Onyx. Of the Black Beauty. Of the Black Beauty line. So it continues to improve. The Black Beauty, it was beautiful. It was dramatic back then. But if you saw Onyx compared to Tara or Toltec today, some of the newer material, you would say, well, that onyx isn't very good looking, but that's 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 the benefit of plant breeding. So it's uh, there is nothing like it. So whenever people say, well, we have a, something similar, we have um, tall fescues in our mixes, those are not the same thing. They are Festuca Renanacea, but they are all based on the K31 line of, of plant breeding. K31 is native to North America. We, our plant breeders have, dis- and so the universities have discovered 13 branches to the family tree Festuca rundinacea. So far, there's probably more. We're breeding on two distinct lines that have nothing to do with the K31 line. That's why everybody else's uh, tall fescues are kind of clunking. People don't like tall fescue. When you say it's tall fescue, they say, oh, I don't want that. That's a, that's a pasture grass. That's a backyard grass. Don't put that in my lawn. That's because they remember K31. Ours are nothing like that. Great. So, you know, with Black Beauty today and, and how it compares to other breeds of grass seed, you know, whether it's, you know, ryegrass or whatever that be, you know, what are some of the benefits, you know, that come along with using Black Beauty tall fescue in your yard? Well, species diversity. Um, if you're going to have a great lawn, you want more than one variety in it. Um, as good as Black Beauty is, it doesn't have a rhizoming root system. So if you have a bare spot, you want that bare spot to fill in, well, then you'd like some bluegrass in the mixture. Um, Black Beauty varieties germinate pretty quickly, but not as quickly as perennial ryegrass. So if you're afraid of a washout, it's nice to have a little... Um, a little ryegrass in the mixture, but not just any ryegrass. You have to breed the ryegrass and the bluegrass to all look the same because the homeowner doesn't want one grass of one color, one of another, one growing at a different rate. If you put annual ryegrass in your lawn, it will grow quick and you'll mow it and then it will grow about two inches higher than the rest of the grass and that's a contaminant. You know, the definition of a weed is something in a place you don't want it, you know, a plant where you don't want it to be. 
Well, the wrong grass in a lawn would be considered a weed. You don't want it in that environment. You want Americans like dark green grass, and they like it to be uniform. That's why they like bluegrass. But Black Beauty looks like bluegrass, but doesn't have the disease problems of bluegrass. Bluegrass is very important. I mean, we're not in any way talking it down. It is a key component. It is used by sod growers just as much as Black Beauty is. As a matter of fact, every every single Black Beauty sod mixture grown by a sod grower will have a percent of bluegrass in it, usually 5 to 10 to 15 they use it to knit the root system together so they can lift it. But what you're seeing with your eyes is primarily black beauty. Um, so it makes sense as long as the grasses look the same. It's great to have frontier perennial ryegrass in there because it's just as dark green as black beauty. It's great to have the right bluegrasses for knitting ability. Um, and, of course, because they're different species, genetically different plants, they get different diseases. So tall fescues get brown patch disease. Um, it doesn't kill black beauty. It can happen, though, sometimes. But, um, that, um, but uh, brown patch disease is not gotten by bluegrass. And bluegrasses get patch disease, that, like fusarium, which tall fescue doesn't get. So, so when you have more than one grass, you have, it's much less likely you're going to get disease. And if you do you're going to get it later and you're going to recover from it faster. So that's the advantage. The trick to breeding is to breed all the plants so that they have a similar appearance, but you're but you're basic you're growing a lawn on a genetically broad base. It's, you know, it's it's important. It's like diversification in your investment. So kind of like if uh, if you're investing in the stock market, you're picking, you know, a number of different companies so that you're you're diversified and and yeah, risk exactly. If you invest all in technology, it, it's great when Apple's doing well or or Google or something. But uh, they can take a hit, and your investments drop. You know, twenty percent in one day. You know? so it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's nice to invest a little in three M or something too. You know, so you've talked before about Black Beauty being the flagship seed brand that you have. What quality aspects of Black Beauty are out there? You mentioned a little bit about actual disease resistance or drought resistance. Can you talk to, you know, why it has those components or qualities to it? So as far as um, what are the attributes, improved disease resistance, improved appearance, improved insect tolerance because of endophytes, which makes the plant, um, uh, these, our plants contain an alkaloid that makes them uh, naturally insect resistant. So you have to use less chemicals. Uh, to achieve the same goal. Um, that's primarily for surface feeding insects like chinch bugs. If you stop trying to improve, then you won't, and, you, and your grass eventually will fail. We don't stick with a generation or specific variety just because we have it in production. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that we're six generations in, so the onyx isn't even grown anymore. Black magic isn't grown anymore because we've improved them. The attributes, why are we trying to improve them? We're always trying to get a finer leaf, a, um, uh, a uniform plant. We call it a vegetative plant. I mentioned before about yield. Varieties that yield a lot of seed on an acre of ground are, have a more decumbent growth habit, the, meaning that from the crown, which is the center, the heart of the plant, it's where the connection between the roots and the leaves, that's, that's the, um, the crown. Plants that are heavy seed yielders will tend to grow sideways, open. So when you stand on your lawn with, say, K31, and you look straight down at the ground, you're going to see soil because they don't grow thick. A plant that has a vegetative growth habit grows thick, has a lot more, does tillers, grows thicker, a nicer, thicker canopy of grass. There's a challenge, though, when you're breeding a vegetative plant with a thicker canopy where the leaves touch each other, it's much easier for the disease mycelia to move from leaf to leaf to leaf in, in hot, in, you know, when it's hot and humid out. Um, so you have to breed, the, your, you know, and plants are just like people except the time frame with people maybe is a little bit longer. But, you know, when you're young, if you, you know, get a little bit of exercise and eat reasonably well and maybe don't smoke too much, you know, you, um, you and you're pretty healthy, you know, you recover quickly. Um, but as you get older, 
um, you know, you you get more diseases. You don't recover as quickly. And eventually, you know, you usually die of one of those diseases. Plants, uh, the same thing happens. As that plant ages, it becomes more prone to disease and insect damage and so on. So you have to continue to improve. You you can't stand still. And this is one of the reasons why the, what's sold in chain stores never works because they tend to, they tend not to um, change change horses. They tend to stick with something just because they got the right price and they can get a lot of it. But if that plant was native to Holland to begin with and it has no inherent heat resistance, just because it yields a lot of seed, what what does the homeowner care about that? What does the homeowner care about saving a dollar or two at suggested retail when they've just done all the work, to, you know, to prepare the ground, put down their starter fertilizer, their magic cow, and love your soil, and now they put down uh, an inferior grass that in by next year looks like it's why did they bother? You know, it's crazy. I mean, time is what's valuable to people. There's one other interesting point I'd like to make here. I don't personally do the breeding. I'm aware of it. I work with them. But I'm not a plant breeder myself. Uh, We have plant breeders that work for Cascade Seed. But we have an open-door policy. We will deal with any turfgrass plant breeder in the world. We're interested in new technologies, better developments. And we, we have learned that our own plant breeders will eventually fall into a pattern or get into a groove. They like a certain look. They like a certain attribute. And even if, they're, if they don't think they're doing it, they tend to want to create the same plant again and again, uh, but with improvements, but modest improvements. We have found um, that by going outside of our own company, we can bring in new ideas now, you, nobody will usually ask this question, but how does a plant breeder make money? A plant breeder gets a payment, what they call a royalty, and it's a, it averages 5% of the farm gate price of the seed. So if I contract, say I contract grass seed for a dollar with a farmer, a nickel of that dollar goes to the plant breeder. I'm going to pay that nickel to my plant breeder or to another plant breeder. I don't care who I pay it to. I just want the newest technology and the best ideas. And because plant breeders know we have an open door, every plant breeder in the industry comes to us and says, look at this, look what I've developed. And Black Beauty is great today, but there are things on the horizon that are about three or four years out that are significant improvements that we're about to release. I shouldn't mention, I don't want to give my competitors any early information, but but um, I promise you that it will continue to improve the Black Beauty varieties. And it's not just Black Beauty. We also have a bluegrass program called Blue Panther. We have a perennial ryegrass program called New Frontier. And we have a fine fescue program called Flying Eagle. So it, Black Beauty's got most of the press, though. Sounds like, you know, not only that you guys have great products today, but, you know, you really you know, focus the company around development and innovation so that it can continue to be a source where people can go to and, and get seeds derived from newer technologies and, and newer breeding practices. Terry, that's exactly right. Um, actually, the biggest breakthrough, just as important as the grass seed varieties, and it's, it's, um, it's happened starting about 10 years ago. I mean, everybody, you know, anybody uh, you would know and anybody who's spent their any kind of time reading books about horticulture or gardening or understands that you know you got to have a good foundation you can plant the greatest grass in the world but if you plant it in um, ground that's as hard as concrete it's not going to be easy to grow that root system if the uh, ph is so acidic that and you know weeds like acidic soil grass likes um, basically neutral to slightly acidic soil so if your pH is 4.8 and you really should be 6.8, you're, you're two points off. And, it's, and, and as you know, the pH scale is a logarithmic scale. It's meaning that there's 100 base points between uh, 3 and 4 and 4 and 5. And so it's, um, there's a huge difference. Raising pH is not a, a simple thing. But what Jonathan Green has done uh, is starting about probably 15 years ago, we developed a new a new lime product, which today is called MagiCal. It's a soluble form of calcium, and calcium is extremely important. It's a, it's, it's a building block that the plant uses to make cells and, and, and so on. 
but um, it just just as calcium is important and for strong bones in a human being, it's important in a grass plant. Um, and our Magical, one bag is the equivalent of 10 bags of pelletized lime. So you can raise pH pretty quickly because it contains a, a completely soluble calcium with an organic acid that helps release in humates. Humates are the fossilized remains of plant and animal life from the time of the dinosaurs. The microbes like them. Uh, they, they, they feed on them like steak. Um, but So with Magical, we were able to adjust pH. And with this other product, Love Your Soil, we were able to basically stimulate soil biology. Love Your Soil is dehydrate gypsum. A lot of people know that you use gypsum to break up compacted soil, but this is a super gypsum combined with molasses, which is a natural sugar source for the microbes, and um, L amino acids and calcium. And, and, you know, so what we're able to do with both Magical and Love Your Soil is to, is to build topsoil, to create topsoil. So we now are able to provide people, and relatively quickly, a great foundation for building a lawn. So we call this, and some my wife always laughs at this. She, she says she's not so sure it's as clear as we think it is, but we say it's the USA approach to lawn care. Our program is called the New American Lawn, and we say the New American Lawn is easy, easy to remember as USA. So U the, in USA stands for Use Genetically Superior Grass Seed Like Black Beauty, the S stands for stimulate soil biology to stop soil compaction. That's the love your soil. And the A stands for adjust soil pH. That's the magic out. If those three products are used, it's almost impossible not to have a good lawn. And you will use less chemical controls, less traditional fertilizer, and have less problems than you've ever had before. We have the you know the superior seed we can put down and you know, with Magical and, and Love Your Soil, it's really products that are going to give a good foundation or a good home for that grass to thrive in. And I think that's, you know, fantastic to make it easy. And and actually, to go back on a point you mentioned earlier is it is a lot of work and, and you know, we're all busy doing, you know, whatever our, our daily lives entail. But if you go to the foundation of your company with your great-great-grandfather growing, you know, different varieties of grass seed for the lawn bowling court, like it really comes down to a place, you know, where this is for the enjoyment of our home, for, you know, the fun in our backyard. I know my family has a Thanksgiving Day football game, so we want the turf looking good for Thanksgiving. In this day and age, and it's, it's not gotten any better, people are under stress. You know, they work a lot. They, they, because of cell phones, they don't really have even sometimes a break in their own homes. Um, they're, sit, they're looking at the, you know, the bumper of the car in front of them too often. They, they need an escape. And you're not supposed to be a slave to the lawn. You, you, you know, um, people, I guess maybe some people don't understand what the word perennial means, but the, these grasses are perennial grasses, meaning they will live year after year after year. I was in a garden center a number of years ago, and the guy said, this is a great mix. I use it every year. He's talking about somebody else's mix. And I said, you're not supposed to have to use it every year. It's supposed to be good enough to survive for a long time. Um, we we like to think, uh, my grandfather had a saying. He said, Barry, we're not selling lawns. We're selling picnics. And he was always right on. We're selling the use of the lawn. Even if you can't, uh, even if you don't have time to use it, if it's a beautiful, restful environment, you think, you know what, this weekend I'm going to go out and I'm going to grill something and we're going to kick a ball around the lawn. And even if it doesn't happen, and hopefully it does, but even if it doesn't, it's still there. It's you. It gives you a mental break, a release, and we need that in this country. We believe in d- delivering truly exceptional results, and you will not have to be a slave to your lawn. Um, what, as a, and there's one other big trend in the United States. People are very interested in organics, and we're a big believer in organics. But I can tell you this. If you take a person who has used a chemical approach to lawn care and constantly been putting down a weed and feed and they've got, you know, bare spots and ugly looking grass, and then you tell them, you know what, organics is the answer. You've got to get away from all that. And they go completely to organics in one step, they end up being disappointed. They think organics don't work. And they say, you know what, they just cost more and I'm not doing that again. We we have a my um 
a sales manager has a term he uses, the new American lawn helps you to graduate to an organic program. The You start by taking care of the soil and planting the superior grass. Sure, sure, you might have to use a little weed control and insect control in order to clean up a problem that developed over many, many years using other products. But you don't have to be a slave to it. Over the course of as little as two or three years, you can get the lawn in very in good shape, and then it's ready to go to organic, and it will stay great because organics are very good slow-release food sources that build up the soil. The, the reason people should be questioning the use of chemical fertilizers is not because inherently they're bad. They're not bad. What they do is they bypass the soil life. When you put a bag of fast-release fertilizer down, that plant it sucks it up immediately, and you see an instant green color. That's not the way the plant is designed to feed. The food is supposed to be broken down by the soil microbes and then given to the root system of the plant. When you feed the plant with a chemical fertilizer, you create top growth and not much roots. If you want the plant to survive, you want to feed it slowly through the roots, the way it was designed to feed. That's why you want to use organic fertilizers. And by the way, the Magic Cow and the Love Your Soil that I mentioned before are organic anyway, so they're starting off on the right footing. Great. So it's using you know more organic components for more success in the end anyways. Now, especially in New England, we're heading into the fall season where you know, we learned on our last episode was the ideal time to go in and plant grass seed. Can you help us understand the different varieties of the mixes and how we go through selecting which one is the right one for our lawn? Well, it's it's relatively easy because our name, the names of the products denote their end use. So we have um, sun and shade, uh, full sun, dense shade. We have shady nooks, which is for incredibly um, shady situations. We have heavy traffic, so as you can imagine, that's going to be you know a swing set where kids are on it, and uh, you know they're they're roughing up the grass, so there's bare spots. So heavy traffic would be good for there. The only time we don't actually follow that guideline or by naming a product is with Black Beauty and Black Beauty Ultra. And so people say all the time, well, what's the difference? Well, Black Beauty Ultra is closest to what the sod growers plant. It is it is 80% Black Beauty tall fescues, 10% bluegrass to knit the root system together, and 10% frontier perennial ryegrass that gives you quick germination and establishment and a lot of wear tolerance. The Black Beauty original, as we call it now, is um, is three the three Black Beauty tall fescues. It's used more for overseeding a stand, a lawn that's already pretty good shape but just got a little bit thin. So when it comes to choosing your grasses, now all of those mixes that I mentioned before, we call that our premium line. We have other mixes like Fast Grow, which is a very good mix, but it's more of temporary grasses. It's, it's, I wouldn't use it in my lawn because I'm interested in long-term results. If you're putting your house on the market and you know you're going to sell it in, in two months and you need quick establishment, you might want to use Fast Grow. But if you want a long-term great-looking lawn, you're going to use one of the premium, premium mixes. But we call Black Beauty and Black Beauty Ultra our supreme mixes because they contain the best of the best, the newest breeding work, the very best results. And they will work in sun and shade. So we didn't want to confuse people you know, by qualifying even more than we have. So you make the choice based upon how you're growing the grass. If you're growing at the base of a tree, then shady nooks is your answer. If, you're, if, if, it's, not seeing, if it's in the shade for 75% of the day, then you want to be using shady nooks. If it's in the shade 50% of the day, well, it's getting enough sun, then shade's going to be fine. If it's, in, if it's in the shade, say, only a third of the day, sun and shade is, is really the answer. But Black Beauty Ultra will grow in all those situations, not quite as well as shady nooks in the deep shade, because that, uh, that has fine fescue in it, too, and that's going to be the most shade-tolerant grass. But... Um, you know, I would say that if, you're, if your listeners have a question and they're just not sure, visit our website or your website and, um, you know, and, and just send us the question. I mean, we answer homeowners' questions all the time, both online 
and even um, you know if they if they're really confused and they provide us with their telephone number we'll call them back and help them so great great and you know as we are you know it's late august heading into september um there's fall magic now is if i use sun and shade in the spring am i going to see a difference in the lawn i or the overseeing i use with fall magic no actually fall magic is very much like sun and shade um it's that is a great mixture but you know and uh, honestly it could be used in the spring too it's basically the fall version of sun and shade i think you were asking me this question but uh, i didn't answer it completely about seeding you want the soil temperature to be as warm as possible so the best time to seed a lawn is late august or any time in september or the first half of october but the earlier the better um, because the soil temperature is warm deep down it's been warmed by the sun by the summer sun so if your root system, if, if the soil is warm down, you know, and I mean by warm, I mean 75 to 78 degrees and it down at six inches, now the grass germinates and that grass root system is going to go straight down because it's going to seek warmth. As, your, as the air temperature cools, the ground, which is like the ocean, takes longer to cool off, will go it will continue to go deep while the top doesn't grow as fast. And that's the way to grow a great lawn. When you plant, fall is the best time to plant a lawn because you're going to grow roots and you're not going to have the weed competition and you're not going to have the stresses you would have in the summer. More people do it in the spring because they feel like doing it in the spring. But the best time to actually do it is in the fall. And then you also don't have the um, crabgrass control and things like that to worry about. So it's very simple. You do it, you know, if you want to pick a date, Labor Day weekend's ideal. Um, you scratch the ground. You apply your seed with a dropper broadcast spreader. You put down magic on Love Your Soil, and you put down um, a new seeding fertilizer on it, something that's higher in phosphorus because phosphorus grows the root system of the grass. And you, um, and then you, and you can do it on the same day, one right after another. It doesn't matter the order in which you do it in. What does matter is don't mix them in the same spreader. They're different particle sizes, different throw weights. They go different distances. You're, you know, If you're going to put down all four products, you're going to make four passes on the lawn. You get a good exercise that day. But you can do it all at once and then water it if you can. It helps. Water it three times a week at most. And when you water, water deeply. You want to get a half inch of water down into the root zone, which usually means about 30 minutes for the sprinkler system. But um, but as it gets later, back off on it. Do it twice a week. Eventually, you really won't have to do it at, at all. So you do want to water it to get it started. But uh, remember, don't drown it because you want that root system to go deep. That's your a good, thick, solid lawn is your best defense against weeds. So if there's no room, if if, the, if all the available ground is covered by grass, there's no room for weeds. So. Are there any common follies or, or things where you see people go wrong or misconceptions you see out there? I've seen people, you know, use a rotary spreader and not realize that they've just put it into their flower beds and now they have grass growing in the flower beds. They're unhappy with that. I've see, I know that um, people don't do anything to prepare the ground sometimes. They just spread it on a very hard packed surface and maybe there's thatch um, build up in the and so so the grass actually lays in the thatch and then you get rain so thatch is like a sponge it will hold water thatch is is an overgrown root system is what it is it's not grass clippings it's an overgrown root system Um, and so they don't ever um, rake out the lawn or rent a power rake or rake it by hand, you want to get, you need to grow grass, you need good seed-to-soil contact. Um, That's the only important thing. Just get good seed-to-soil contact. You don't have to put down, don't put down peat moss on it. I've heard people, oh, I put down, there's nothing drier than peat moss, you know. If you want to use a seeding mulch, we sell a product called green mulch. You can break that up. It's basically a ground-up newspaper dyed green. It will hold water. But you really don't need it. You use that if it's a slope or something. The mistake that people make is they either seed it completely at the wrong time 
like they'll be putting it down in, uh, they can finally get to it and it's after Thanksgiving and they expect incredible results and the ground temperature is cold at that point. Do it earlier, do it properly and don't use too much. Follow the directions. Um, people, there's a feeling in this country that if a little is good, more is better. And so they just, they open up the spreader and they put it down at the heaviest possible rate um, on a square inch of ground, it's going to support about 20 grass plants. You don't want 50 grass plants because some will have to die for the others to thrive. You're actually setting yourself back. But here's the, the, the best trick. Put, after you put down everything, put down, well, I said it doesn't really matter the order, and it doesn't. But when I do it, I put down my seed first. Then I put down everything else. The reason is I'm walking over the ground three other times, so I'm kind of pressing that seed into the soil. We call it like tipping it under. If you if you are going to incorporate soil and people will add soil, it's not really necessary except for to even out the grade of the lawn. If they do, don't bury it too deep. That is a common mistake. They'll put the grass down, and now they lay two inches of soil on top of it. It's supposed to be pressed into the surface of the soil. If it's two inches down, it's not germinating. Well, thank you for all the advice today. And thank you for your hospitality and having us here at Jonathan Green HQ. I know you guys are continuing to improve just like your grass seed, your website, and adding material up there all the time for us to go and and learn more about the products and and new things coming with Jonathan Green. So thank you very much. Well, thank thank you very much for uh, traveling all this way here from Connecticut. Uh, It was a real pleasure to have you, and and thank you for your business all these years. You've been a very loyal retailer to us, and uh, we certainly appreciate that. Absolutely, and looking forward to that to to continue. So for key points of this episode, uh, visit the blog section of our website at MackeysInc.com. That's M-A-C-K-E-Y-S-I-N-C.com. And thank you to our producer, Brian McKenna. And thank you to all for listening. And remember, where that is and what you love, that's home. Mackey's, where the home grows. <laughs>